Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. What is faith? To some, it is believing in something without evidence. To others, it's a means by which to attain God's blessings, like prosperity and health. John Shainheit explains how neither of these definitions best encapsulates the biblical understanding. Instead, he shows how faith is really just trust in what God says, whether in Scripture or by revelation or prophecy. In this fascinating interview, you'll learn about how the meaning of the word faith has changed throughout Christian history, as well as how the word of faith approach could ruin your life. Here now is interview 26, Word of Faith versus Trusting God with John Shainheit. Welcome to Restitutio. I'm glad to talk with you today. Sean, glad to be here. All right. To begin with, I just wanted to mention that I had watched a video of you a few weeks ago where you were sharing on various understandings of the word faith, and I really appreciated the distinctions you were making. From your understanding, in the Bible, what does the word faith mean? Well, I think, first of all, it's going to help if we realize what the Greek word is and then how we're going to bring that in English, or, or maybe more simply, um, the word faith in the phrases like faith in God, that kind of thing. It just means trust or confidence or assurance. It's not complicated. It's not um, hard to understand. We understand the word trust. Every one of us in our lives has people that we trust and people we don't trust. And when you understand that the Greek word pistis and the Latin word fides, which came into English as faith, meant trust, then all of a sudden the Bible becomes pretty easy to understand when we're dealing with those phrases. Mm -hmm. So if pistis means trust, then why do so many translations use the word faith instead? Well, really, faith is a word that came into our English from the Latin. And the Greek word pistis, if our English word faith, our theological language was based on that Greek background, then we would probably have a word, an English word, similar to pistis. But the Latin word was fides. And since the Latin Vulgate had been the translation of the Bible for over a thousand years, when the English Bible was translated, uh, then they simply took fides and it became faith in the English language. So what then do you make of the idea that faith is believing in something without evidence? I mean, this is a very common usage that we hear today. You got to have faith and Sometimes you even hear skeptics criticizing Christianity, saying, oh, well, faith is holding a belief without evidence or contrary to the evidence. Where did that idea come into the picture? Yeah, that's fabulous. And I'll tell you what, Sean, do you mind if we kind of back up a little bit and yeah, sure. get a little, a little more history? Because what we're going to find if we really study the meaning of faith as it's used in English today is the word faith has changed meanings twice in English history. And so we need to be aware of that. And the first thing we need to be aware of is that the original Greek word, pistis, was a very common Greek word, and it simply meant trust or confidence or assurance. And it also meant faithfulness. And you can see this in, in any Greek lexicon, any good Greek lexicon. My goodness, um, you know, a lot of people have heard of vines, expository dictionary vines. says firm persuasion, a conviction based on hearing. The Bauer lexicon, state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted, trust or confidence. The New Bible Dictionary even says it's an attitude of complete trust. So if you look at the lexicons and bring them forward, the word pistis meant trust. Two of the major definitions were trust and faithfulness. Now, we pull that, here's the Greek Bible. The Greek Bible gave way to the Latin Bible. We pulled pistis over into Latin, fides. And the reason we did was that the Latin word fides was almost a mirror image of pistis. I mean, they are very, very, very similar in their meanings and in their lexical semantic range. So 
Pistis got translated into the Latin as fides. Fides came over, well, and actually was used by the church, you know, for over a thousand years. And during the time that the church used the word fides, really before even the English language was developed, doctrines began to enter the church that you couldn't back up with scripture. I mean, if you and I want to back up the death of Christ, it's easy. We go to a verse and we show it. But you start introducing things into the church doctrine that are not clearly spelled out in the Bible, such as papal infallibility or uh, you know some of the other doctrines that have come into the church, then well-meaning Christians, and, and really they should have, said, hey, where are you getting this? How can I trust this? Because I, I'm going to go back to my example of people. You have people you trust and people you don't trust. Why do you trust the people that you do? Because over a period of time, they have proved themselves to be trustworthy. I can't take somebody who I just don't trust. Let's say they've lied, they cheated, they've stolen, they're just miserable people, and, and I don't trust them. If somebody comes along to me and says, well, you just have to trust them, it's like, well, the brain just doesn't go there. I can't just trust an untrustworthy thing. But right, you need some sort of evidence. Yeah, sure. You need you need or some kind record. of track record. Yes. If you're going to build trust, you need a track record, and you need something to trust in. And all of a sudden, here comes the church, and it's introducing these doctrines that were not in the Bible. And then people would say, well, what do I do about this? And so the saying became, well, just take it by faith. Now, this didn't work as well in Latin as it does in English, because in Latin, everybody knew what faith fides meant. But as soon as you come over into English, and if you go out on the street and ask the average Christian what faith is, they're very vague about faith. They don't have a crisp definition for faith. And so all of a sudden somebody comes along and says, well, you know, the papal infallibility thing, you've got to take that by faith or, you know, this doctrine that, and then they introduce whatever doctrine and they say, well, I I know it's not clearly spelled out in the Bible, but you just take it by faith. And then people who don't really understand what faith is then say, oh, okay, I'll just have to take it by faith. And they accept it. They say, okay, I'll accept that a great example would be the two natures of Christ that the doctrine of the trinity says that Christ is fully god and fully man and he has these two natures and they're supposed to be able to communicate to, to each other and that doctrine is is not clearly spelled out in the bible so somebody says well just take it by faith and so somebody accepts it and they think that's taking it by faith but it's not yeah, I think we could even go a step further when it comes to the dual natures. If you consider, for example, the Chalcedonian Confession, the creed that they brought out in 451 and, and read it through just in an English translation, it's so complicated and convoluted that your average person is not going to even understand what they're confessing. And so now you've moved beyond the realm of what's intelligible or comprehensible to now accepting something on the basis of the authority of the church. And there might have been some things like that with Jesus or the apostles where they said, well, because of our position or authority, you have to accept this. But I don't think it was ever anything that was logically confusing or somehow contradictory or paradoxically you know, convoluted. Sure, and there are things that in Christianity we want to accept while we're building our trust. Like, for example, let's let's take the law of as you sow, you reap, and the scriptural mandate to give, say, give to the poor, give to others, help out others. Well, when I initially start that, I may see that in the scripture and not trust it at all. 
but simply accept it as, okay, I'm reading it in the Bible. I see it in the Bible. Do I trust it yet? No, I don't, but I accept it. So you start to give. And then as you start to give, you enter the, into that relationship just like you'd enter into a relationship with a salesman. A guy shows up at your doorstep with a little widget, tells you it'll solve all your problems if you buy it, but it's only $5.99. So you say, what the heck? You don't trust the guy yet, but you accept, okay, this going to really help, and you're willing to take that risk. So you, you buy the widget and by golly, it does solve a lot of problems. So the next time he shows up and he's got something that costs $12.99 and he says, hey, this will help out too. You're like, okay, I'm, I, I'm willing to accept this might really help me. And then by the time he shows up with a third or fourth or fifth thing, if he's built a track record, then he shows up and says, well, this is $29.99, but I guarantee you this will make you happy. And you say, great, and you trust him. But it's based on a relationship that started with acceptance at some level. And because the average Christian doesn't know what faith is, then they confuse it with accepting. So they accept the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the two natures or whatever doctrine it is that's being palmed off that's not clearly in the Scripture. What happened, because there, there wasn't a doctrine that you could actually trust that as the Middle Ages developed, you know, and, and as the church developed, then fides... Fides, which had started out with the apostles, and, and Pistis, which had started out with the apostles as trust. I know you. I have a relationship with you. I see what you're saying. It makes sense to me. I trust. All of a sudden became, well, belief in something for which there was no evidence. And that was the first change of the word Pistis in Christianity. When, Christ, when, when Pistis moved from trust because what I am, am dealing with, I understand it and it's trustworthy, to, well, I accept it and that must be faith. Right, right. So let's talk about that second shift. What happened there in the 20th century about the word faith? Well, in the 20th century, you had what's called the Word of Faith movement. And by the way, there's a really nice book out that traces a lot of the history of the Word of Faith movement. It's uh, by D.R. McConnell, and it's called A Different Gospel. And he talks about the development of the faith movement. And basically what happened is the idea that faith became a force of the mind, and this, this was a huge jump from the traditional roots of what faith was and the way the word faith, pistis, and fides were used in the original languages. Because, right. you know, where it started out with me trusting God— and God was the one who supplied the power. God was the one who did the miracles. God was the one who determined whether something would happen or not, a, a healing, a miracle, whatever. All of a sudden, faith became a force of my personal mind. And, and, then, uh, and then whether or not I could bring material goods into my life, money into my life, blessings into my life, whatever, became uh, solidly on my shoulders. And this, the astounding thing is that we should have been on top of this long ago for a number of reasons. One of them is that it's written up in a lot of non-Christian books. You know, so here, for example, is uh, Rhonda Byrne, and she writes a book called The Secret, and then she starts quoting people about this and, and relying on this. She says on, on page one, quoting somebody, the secret gives you anything you want, happiness, health, wealth. On page nine, if you can think about what you want in your mind and make that your dominant thought, you will bring it into your life. Now, is that really the teaching of the Bible? Then uh, they call this in the book, The Secret, the law of attraction. And they say right. the law of attraction is a law of nature. It is impartial as the law of gravity. And then on page 47 of her book, The Secret, she writes, the creative process used in The Secret which was taken from the New Testament in the Bible, is an easy guideline for you to create what you want in three simple steps. And the three simple steps are ask, believe, and receive. The fact that 
these faith ministers teach that this stuff works for everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a godly person or not, whether you serve God or not, should have cued us to the fact that, wow, there's something going on here that that really isn't right. So, for example, uh, we have E.W. Kenyon, and in his book, The Two Kinds of Faith, on page 36, he writes, faith in your own faith is the law of success in the realm of the Spirit. Okay, faith in your own faith, let's just translate that simply, is faith in yourself. Right. So translate the faith in yourself is the law of success. See, wow. I mean, this almost seems like a Star Wars pantheism where there is this spiritual force pervading the universe that we activate or manipulate using positive confession or summoning up this power of faith that then reaches out and makes things happen which is a very different kind of view than what we see in the Bible and what we have in Christianity where we have prayer, but it's not positive thinking. And I mean, I just when you read that from The Secret, because I'm familiar with The Secret, the book, the movie, What the Bleep Do We Know, which came out kind of as a predecessor, and this whole like New Age way of approaching spirituality – I find it very surprising that they say, oh, this is nothing more than what the New Testament teaches. So there is definitely something in the New Testament, something within Christianity that is being co-opted here. What do you think that is as far as the bridge between yeah, these two ideas? That's, that's a great question, and I'll tell you what. Let me, let me quote a few more uh, people just so we understand sure. what we're dealing with, then I'll go into that, because that, that's really powerful, because I just quoted Kenyon that faith in your own faith is the law of success. Well, you'd think, surely that's kind of radical, right? Then you, Kenneth Hagin, he says, what you've got to learn to do to get things from God, have faith in your faith. And then, of course, uh, I think some of us are familiar with uh, Victor Paul Werewell. He said, quote, the law of believing is the greatest law in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, it is not only the greatest law in the Word, it's the greatest law in the whole world. Believing works for saint and sinner alike. And then Kenneth Copeland wrote in uh, his book, The Force of Faith, uh, this is page 13, faith is a power force. It's a tangible force. It is a conduct force. It will move things. Faith is a spiritual force. The reason I wanted to read these quotes is to let you know you know that this is not something that just one or two ministers believe. This is this is something that you're exactly right. It's called a law, and it's believed to be like a law of the universe that God established this, that it's out there, that anybody, no matter who they are, no matter how they behave, no matter what their relationship is to God, that they can tap into this. And and you know, I don't want to vilify people that believe this because I know I, I believed it. I mean, for the first you know 18, 19 years of my Christian life, I, I believe. It. There are a lot of good people, but that doesn't make it right. <laughs> and so what happened? How did, how did this happen? Why is it said to be part of the New Testament? And part of it is just a misunderstanding of some of the, the contexts of the Word of God. And boy, if you do any kind of study of the Word of God at all, then you know that one of the great, great principles of interpreting the Bible is context. Absolutely. So, so, for example, when Christ cursed the fig tree in Mark 11, and the fig tree died, and all the apostles are astounded. And this was really interesting, because as a result of this, what did Jesus Christ say in Mark eleven twenty two? He said, have faith in God. He didn't say have faith in yourself or have faith in your faith. Right. He, he said have faith in God because what he was doing, and he made this very clear in other teachings, that he didn't do anything unless it was at, at God's behest. So the reason that Christ was able to curse the fig tree and have it die was because he received revelation at that time to curse the fig tree, which makes what he did the manifestation of faith or the manifestation of trust, or sometimes called the manifestation of believing. And that's written up in the manifestation to the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if we have revelation from God to do something, 
that's the word that then we can trust and step forth and do it. So God says, heal this person. If God says it, we can step out and do it. There was a misunderstanding because in the same context in Mark 11, after he, he curses the fig tree, the fig tree dies, the apostles are amazed. He says, have faith in God. And then he says, if you say to this mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea and don't doubt in your heart, it'll be done for you. And, and then he starts talking about you've got to believe. And all those things are true, but they're premised on the fact that revelation from God was given first. And people say, well, but that's not, that's not mentioned in that context. Oh my goodness, there are truckloads of, of miracles in the Bible where it doesn't say that God told the person to do the miracle first. I mean, you read the four Gospels and there's, there's miracles of Jesus Christ. Even say Peter raising Tabitha. Uh, from the dead in the book of Acts. It doesn't say, and the Lord told Peter, okay, you can raise Tabitha from the dead. It just says he walked in, he put everybody out of the room, he said, Tabitha, I stand you arise, and she got up. Well, you know, try that. Go to the local morgue and, and give that a shot, you know. And how do, how do we know that that one instance was by revelation? Well, we, we know it for a couple different reasons. One, from the whole scope of Scripture, but there were a, a lot of people that died in the early Christian church. There was Stephen, for example, that died. There were other people that died, some of natural causes and, and some because they were killed. If Peter could just of his own faith his own trust in God, walk around and, and have faith in his faith and raise the dead, then then he let a lot of people down. Yeah, but, well, eventually everybody died, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, you also made me think of 1 Corinthians when the Apostle Paul described the thorn in the flesh. Yes. And how that was something that he prayed for repeatedly and in the end was told that the Lord's grace is sufficient for him. So that might be another example where here's a man who had such faith repeatedly expressed in healing and all kinds of incredible deeds, and yet he was not able to cure himself. Right. And, you know, if you, if you go uh, into the Scripture and start looking at the Scripture that way, there's loads and loads of examples you know, for example, we know that, that Joshua, you know, the way the walls of Jericho fell, uh, they fell because of the revelation he received, walk around Jericho for seven days and that kind of thing. But if, if the walls of Jericho fell because Joshua had such great faith, then why didn't he take the rest of the Canaanite cities that way? I mean, that was really effective. <laughs> you know, right. he could yeah. he could have he could have spared himself a lot of time and energy if he if he could actually just do that. But he did that by revelation, and and that brings up an interesting point because I did believe this for so long, and so this was not just a an intellectual exercise for me. The journey of me coming to believe what I do now uh, came through a lot of personal pain, a lot of personal searching, a lot of conversations with, with many good people because, you know, for years and years, I mean, for nearly 20 years of my life, I believed this stuff worked. And so there's, there's reasons for believing that uh, faith really is a force. One we've already mentioned is the, the manifestation of faith. Sometimes, you know, I mean, sometimes I very clearly got revelation to heal somebody and they were healed. And, you know, you'd give yourself the credit and say, wow, I had great faith. But really, it's all about God. God gave you the revelation. You trust God and they were healed. But the manifestation of faith gets mixed up with regular faith. And so we think, oh, faith works. But really, it's the manifestation of faith. Sometimes it's prayer. If I think about the times that I was supposedly believing for something, oh, I should mention this, I should insert into this at this point that you can go to the Bible and look at believe for, believing for, faith for, that phrase never appears in the Bible. Pray for appears in the Bible. But you would think if believing for things, having faith for things was so central to the Christian walk it would appear at least a couple times in the epistles or the book of Acts or whatever. And, and the fact of the matter is, from Genesis to Revelation, you can do a Boolean search. And, and look, that phrase never occurs. 
because it isn't about us. It's about God and trusting God in his revelation. So let me just clarify for a moment. You're saying that faith is not something that we have over against the evidence. That's the old medieval mindset that is very much alive today. And it's also not tapping into this force or something that we project out of ourselves to sort of like as a fishing line, go out there and hook what we desire and then pull it towards us. Like I'm, I went to Bible college with a, uh, a lady who was a very strong committed follower of Creflo Dollar. And her constant confession was that she had a private jet. And she said, hey, Sean, I have a private jet. And I was like, oh, well, (laughs) let me take a ride in it. And what she was doing was she was confessing it so that it would come true, which it never Mm -hmm. did. But that's not biblical either. What you're saying is if faith is trust, trust is in what God has said, whether it's in the scriptures themselves or in something else that God has said, maybe through revelation or prophecy or something else like that. Sure. You've got to think about faith being trust and just just transpose what you're trusting into a human being and say, is this trustworthy? It'd be great if I could look at, you know, I get a statement from the bank and I'm not going to open it and I just say, okay, there's a million dollars in there. There's a million dollars in there. Well, that works until I open the envelope and, right. and there's not. And I want to be cautious here because I want to make sure we understand that there is a value to a godly, biblical, positive confession. You know, the, the Bible talks about having a positive attitude and, and being joyful and that kind of thing. And somebody who's morose and kind of like Eeyore the donkey all the time and, <laughs> you know, that type of thing, that can really have a deleterious effect on your life because when it can hurt your health. Proverbs is very clear. A merry heart does good like a medicine. I don't know if you've ever worked with someone who's constantly negative, but they're not likely to get promoted because nobody wants to work under them. Nobody wants to be poked at all the time about, you didn't do this right, you didn't do this right. So so there is a value to positive confession, but does positive confession make things materialize like a million dollars in my bank account? And the answer is no. So there's biblical positive confession, and then there's what we would simply call wishful thinking. It's, it's, it's just really make-believe. Well, there's also this aspect that books like The Secret bring out that I just call common sense, where if you set your heart on something and you order your life around it, it's more likely that you will achieve or acquire that thing. So say, for example, I really want to become a lawyer, and I'm confessing that I'm going to become a lawyer, and so what do I do? I start studying the the LSATs and do the necessary preparation, and I start applying to schools, and then I get into a school, and you, you just maintain that focus, and then you get to the other side, and hey, I don't think it's my confession or my desire that made that happen apart from the work that was needed to get there. And so I feel like in, in one sense, it's just common sense. Like if you focus on something, a lot of times you'll just get there. Yeah, and that, that actually, you know, when you're, when you're asking me, well, what happened that, that faith made this shift? And we're looking at scriptures. One of the really, really sad consequences of the Word and Faith movement and elevating faith is that we dethroned wisdom. You know, if you go into Proverbs, Proverbs 4, 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. And the entire 31 chapters of Proverbs, wisdom is woven all the way through it. Because if you want to do well in life, you have wisdom. And I, I think of Dave Ramsey, the, the guy who helps people with their finances. He comes on the radio. He comes on here in Bloomington at 9 o'clock in the morning, so I don't get to listen to him much. But sometimes I'm driving around. You know, in the years that I've been listening to him, and I have taken his financial uh, peace university class too, I never once heard him mention faith. And yet he's gotten thousands and thousands of people out of debt. And how does he do it? He uses wisdom. He says, well, you got to spend less than you make. (laughs) Now, that sounds like it's so simple, but I've heard faith ministers 
counseling people who need money and say, your problem is you're not giving enough money away. If you were sowing more money, then the, the law of, sowing, of giving and, and reaping, and you begin to reap more money, and I'm sitting there pulling my hair out going, are you kidding? They already need money. They don't need to give any more money away. That's going to make them poorer. They need to yeah, make- I've definitely heard that myself. Yeah, it's, it's very, very hurtful. And, and that's one of the problems with the faith movement is there's, there's a whole bunch of deleterious effects, and, and we can take a look at those. Let me just cover a few more things, if, if I may, about why people believe in the faith movement, because I did for so many years. I really believe that, that my, my brain had this force. So one thing we've seen is, well, I was mistaking the manifestation of faith for regular faith. Another thing is that God answers prayers. Typically, when I would, you, you talked about focusing on something, when I would set my mind on something, let's say, you know, my wife and I need to do a refrigerator, and I'd say, I'm believing for a refrigerator, I'm believing for a refrigerator. Well, at the same time, I was praying every day for a refrigerator. And <laughs> the Bible doesn't say my mind is a, a faith force, but it does say that God answers prayer. And if I, if I pray every day for something and enlist my friends to help me to pray for things, then yes, those things tend to come into my life. Another reason faith seems to work sometimes is just because of grace. You know, God loves us. We're his kids. And if we really want something, I mean, I know that, hey, I've got kids and I've got grandkids. And I think grandkids are a bigger draw than kids. You know, and if the grandkids come along and they say, hey, Papa, can we have <laughs> Genevieve and I pull out the stops, you know, to make sure that they have what they need. And and God's, God's at least as good a father as I am. <laughs> That's an understatement. If you sit there and you really set your heart on something that you want, a lot of times just out of his grace. God will make sure that you have it. Another thing, too, is that God honors gift ministries. The Bible is very clear. There are ministries of miracle workers. There are ministries of healers. I have sat in audiences under the ministry of a healer, in fact, several healers, and I've been amazed it's some of the, the really, really powerful healings that they do. But then the people that follow in their footsteps you know, they, they say, well, here's what I do. I just have faith and I do this and I do this. And they don't realize that they're operating a ministry and that God is using that ministry in them to bring glory to the church. And they think, well, if I just teach people what I do, then they'll be able to do it too. But they can't or can't do it reliably. And, and the answer to that is simply that God honors gift ministries. And then one that I almost hesitate to bring up, but I think it's very, very important, is um, Satan's deceitful help. Periodically, people by their wrong desire, you know, the book of James talks about asking with wrong motives. And, and periodically, people will ask for the wrong thing, or they will ask for ungodly things. You know, the Bible does say that we shouldn't seek to be rich. So if, by golly, I'm going to seek to be rich, if that's what you set your heart's desire on, and you get help doing that, then that could be from a demonic source. And we, we see that very clearly written in books like Think and Grow Rich. And I, I read Think and Grow Rich because I thought, gosh, this could help me. And you know what's intriguing? Sean, when you talked about, you know, yeah, if you focus on it, if you just make that your life's focus, then yes, it's more likely to come to pass. But focusing on, on an ungodly goal is a way to invite a demon into your life to help you. So in uh, Think and Grow Rich, and this is, uh, gosh, the 1937 edition, and he, here's what Napoleon Hill, who's the author, writes. He says, this much the author does know. There is a power or first cause, or an intelligence which permeates every atom of matter and embraces every unit of energy perceptible to man. This intelligence may, through the principles of this philosophy, be induced to aid in transmuting desires into concrete or material form. The author has this knowledge because he has experimented with it and has experienced it. There comes to your aid and to do your bidding with the development of the sixth sense, a, and then he puts this in quotes, guardian angel. I think it's interesting that he puts it in quotes. I think at the time that, that Hill wrote Think and Grew Rich, 
he actually did think this was help from God. But later on, he wrote a different book about the devil in which he said this was the devil. But he says, a guardian angel who will open to you at all times the door to the temple of wisdom. And so Napoleon Hill, after you read 10 chapters, I think it's 10, maybe chapter 11 or chapter 14, I don't remember. I do remember it's the next to the last chapter in the book. So after you read the whole book about how you've got to train your mind to focus on all these material things that you want, then in the next to the last chapter of the book, he says, well, yeah, this guardian angel shows up and helps you get him. <laughs> well, well, that's not God. That's a devil. And, and we need to be aware of the, the danger of putting too much emphasis on material things. Yeah, it seems like this is a major issue with this whole Word of Faith movement as well, in that it brings the focus to our own selfish desires rather than what God wants or what God's doing. And so could you uh, mention a, a little bit about that, how this has the potential to steal God's glory. Yeah, actually, this is huge, Sean. Thanks for bringing this up, because I want to go back to those quotes like by Kenyon and Hagen that the way to success is having faith in your faith. What God says in Hebrews is that without faith, without trust in God, it's impossible to please Him. We've got to trust God. It's not, and that's what Jesus Christ said after He cursed the fig tree. Trust God. Have faith in God. When we shift from going in supplication and prayer before God and saying, God, I'd, I'd love to have this in my life. I think it's your will. And praying to him and, and asking him to bring things into our life. And then, like you say, applying wisdom and doing the best we can to get these things into our life. And we're honoring God and we're glorifying God and we're, we're debasing ourselves. We're, uh, you know, I, I'm not the cause of this. I'm not the reason this happens. If I get this job or if I get this thing that I need, God, it's all about you. And as soon as I shift this to, well, it's all about me, I've got to have faith in my faith, and then I can get this stuff, it becomes all about me. And that's, that's really stealing God's glory. That's pretty serious in light of the Old Testament prophecy that God says, you know, I will not give my glory to another. We're actually stealing God's glory, but there's so many other deleterious things as well. One is a lack of peace. I can vividly remember times in my life when I believed in the law of believing and where things didn't seem to be coming to pass and I really needed a healing. I, I, I can remember, you know, just uh, I, I've worn eyeglasses since I was a little kid and, you know, and I just was praying and believing that I could get rid of my eyeglasses and then somebody came along and said, well, if you were really believing, you'd throw your glasses away. And so I did. <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> after after nearly wrecking my car a dozen times, tripping over all kinds of things, falling down flights of stairs, <laughs> you know, then it's like, wait a minute, this just simply isn't working. But there was so much pressure on me. Well, did you blame yourself? Sure, of course, and and I and I had a total lack of peace because I believed that if I could do it, if I could conjure up that faith then I could get rid of my glasses, my eyes could Well, be I would say you definitely did have the faith because you <laughs> walked by faith, not by sight, <laughs> for well, however long that was, and that was an indication of your, your confidence or your trust, and it didn't happen because that's just not how it works. Right. It's, it's not the law of believing. That's, that's not a correct doctrine. It's a, it's a false doctrine that's crept into the church. But you're right. But it does. It is important. I've run into so many people now that they just have been aware of the fact that they've been unpeaceful for so long. Because instead of just living life minute by minute, loving God, trusting God, praying to God, all of a sudden there's all this pressure on them to get more money, to get a new car, to get a new whatever it is that they want. Um, so that's another problem. And then, of course, like you said, misunderstanding the scriptures. You go to read the Bible, and instead of reading what the Bible is actually saying, like Mark eleven twenty three about the mountain, you, you're importing this false doctrine over the top of the biblical passage and reinterpreting it according to your understanding of Scripture. Now, of course, that's we always interpret a Scripture in light of our understanding of Scripture. <laughs> but, but what our goal is is to be right in our theology 
so that we're when we're importing a meaning to a scripture, then we don't misunderstand it. I think, for example, of a third John one two. You know, I wish above all things you may prosper and be in health. That was a wish of John the Apostle to whom he was writing. It is not a promise of God. Right, it's not a universal principle. Right, it's not a universal principle. It's not a universal promise. And and by the way, you know, studies show that as you go back and you read the Greco-Roman literature, that was a pretty standard way of opening an epistle. But people that say, gosh, if I could just have enough faith, I would prosper and be in health. And boy, especially if you're if you aren't healthy, you know, I can I can remember when I believed in the law of believing, and there were people that that, and of course we were younger then, so we didn't have as many health problems ourselves. I couldn't, you know, I had my eyeglasses, but but materially I was pretty healthy. But there were other people that had cancer. There were some women that lost babies. There were other problems that people had, paralysis and and uh, and you know blindness and that kind of thing. And there was just this uh, complete misunderstanding of the scripture and then a, a kind of a blaming of them and that's another thing that the law of believing does or the faith movement does is it turns you into one of job's miserable comforters yeah, then you're blaming the victim but you do believe in healing you do believe in miracles right oh absolutely gee and so strike and I, strike that balance for us how does that work i mean you're saying you can't just conjure it up of the force of your own faith but you do believe that god is able to do it so how does that work you know that's really a fabulous balance and uh, and i think we're always trying to strive for it because god surprises me there are times when i'm pretty sure i'm going to get revelation to heal somebody and the revelation isn't there and there are other times where i go in to pray for somebody about their healing and the revelation will be there and you're like really and and then you minister to the person and they're healed or they're partially they're healed. I saw this uh, one time that I ministered to a man that was in a motorcycle accident. And when I went there, I didn't have any kind of revelation that I was going to heal the person or whatever. And they thought the person was going to lose their leg because of the motorcycle wreck. And I just sat next to the hospital bed and I talked to him about mercy and that what we needed here was the mercy of God because he had, he had done a bad thing and, and that's why he'd gotten in such a mess. And I said, you know, but, but God is a merciful God. And all of a sudden, boy, the revelation was there and I prayed for him. He didn't walk out of the hospital room, but he didn't lose his leg either. And so God is a God who loves us, and he is a God who wants to show that there will be total healing, and he wants to confirm his word. And so there are lots of times that he will break through. And then if you combine that, you know, so you're always looking for the revelation. God, have I got the green light? Have I got the revelation to heal? Have I got revelation? And it never hurts to pray for healing even if you don't have revelation to heal, because sometimes God yeah. surprises us and just answers a prayer. And the same thing with miracles. We pray and ask for miracles all the time. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that, because I think somebody could get the impression that you're against faith or you're against miracles or against walking by faith, but that's not what you're saying at all. You're just saying you need to have a balanced perspective and put your faith in what God has said or what God does say rather than in whatever we might want it to be. So let's move and talk about wisdom for a minute, because I know you have been working on Proverbs, and this is a big project that STF is engaged with uh, or has been engaged with. What about laying up for the future, for example, and these kinds of wise practices that, from a word of faith background, you would say, well, if I need money, I'll just believe for money instead of laying up year after year for the retirement and that sort of thing. Oh, Sean, it's so it's so huge to understand the balance between trust and wisdom in so many areas of life. I mean, you, you brought up financial things. And, you know, the, the Bible, even within Proverbs itself, first of all, again, let me reiterate Proverbs 4-7, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. It doesn't say faith is the principal thing. I've even heard Word of Faith ministers say, you know, that you just, you get to retire and then you have faith for money, and then it'll be there. Well, that's just simply not biblical. It really isn't. And what does it say in Proverbs? It says, go to the ant, you lazy one, who stores up her food in the summer. 
obviously, you know, you go and you look at an anthill and you see ants and they're storing up their food in the summer. It's like, okay, what am I supposed to learn from this? Well, the summer is, is when the food was available for the ant and he stored it up when it was available. And so what the, what's the Bible saying there? How would I analogize that? Well, I would be storing up in my working years which are my summer. You know, both my mom and my dad are in their 90s now. They're both alive. They're both in their 90s. Neither, wow. <laughs> neither, yeah, and neither one of them has the capacity to work. I mean, if you, even if you gave them something to do, they're too frail and their minds aren't sound enough that they can actually work. So their summer has come and gone. And now they're in the winter of their life when they're being taken care of by other people and living off what they stored up during life because of their wisdom. And so here's the Bible. And what does it say? Principle is Wisdom is a principal thing. And then it says, go to the ant and learn. And what's the ant supposed to learn? You store up during your, your summertime, your years when you're strong, when, when you can work, when you can be effective, so that when winter comes, hard time comes, you have it. It doesn't say, ah, just spend what's coming in in the summer, and when winter comes, have faith. That's not the lesson in the Bible. And that's just not true of financial things. Think about health. I know people, I, I, I'm, you know, I can say this to your listening audience, I guess. I'm 66 years old. I'm on zero medications. I take a multivitamin and I, and I exercise and I've been involved in various sports of, of, you know, running or hiking or, you know, that kind of thing all my life. But I go into doctor's offices and they say, what medication are you on? And I say, none, just take a multivitamin. And they say, okay, yes, but what medications are you on? <laughs> I'm like, believe me, none. And they just, I've had doctor after doctor just say, wow, at your age, you're not on a single medication. And, but then again, I've, I've really tried to eat right. I've tried to exercise. Um, I've monitored my health. You know, I go to the dentist to get my teeth clean. I go to the doctor and get my annual checkup and that kind of stuff. But I know people that just, by golly, I'm just going to eat what I want. I'm not going to exercise. I'm going to couch potato. I'm going to drink, you know, a half a dozen beers a day and have a giant beer belly. And if I ever get sick, I'm just going to, I'm just going to believe for healing. Again, the, the phrase believe for does not occur in the Bible. And I know a whole load of people that, because because I'm a minister and I visit people in hospitals, and, and I, it, I I got yards and yards of testimonies of people that it, it doesn't work, because we've really got to understand that properly, and that's one of the one of the verses we talk about. Well, what are some of the deleterious effects of the Word of Faith movement? One of them is misunderstanding Scripture. One of the scriptures that misunderstood is, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Well. To the word of faith minister or believer, what that means is I walk around having faith for things, and if I need my car to run, I have faith for it, and if I need health, I have faith for it, and if I have money, I have faith for it, and then all these things just come pouring into my life. That is not at all what the verse means, and we know from life that it doesn't work. The, the people get sick, the people run out of money. So what does it mean, I walk by faith and not by sight? Well, one thing I do is I lose my fear of death. Because God promises me to be raised. I just, just this morning heard a podcast where a guy was talking about if, you know, as the world gets darker, we have got to be prepared to stand against evil, even if it costs our life. Our brothers and sister Christians all over the world, gosh, it was just last week, I believe, there was a group of Christians beheaded in Africa. You know, they're standing for their faith. They're not saying, oh, no, no, I'll become a Muslim. I'll become a Muslim, please. Okay, you're going to kill me, but you know what? God's going to get me up from the dead. So walking by faith means I'm going to lose my fear of death. Walking by faith means that when God says, I will reward you for being a godly person, that I'll being a godly person, even if that makes me stand out and makes it a little uncomfortable, that I don't get drunk while everybody in the party is getting drunk. I might even leave that party. Walking by faith is I, I go to the scripture, I'm a godly person, and I trust that what God says about my, raising me from the dead or rapturing me, what God says about rewarding me, I trust those things and they anchor my soul. Well, I appreciate you giving me the sketch here. If people want to read 
more about this, they can go on your website, right? Yeah, sure. That We have a phone app, uh, that Spirit and Truth Fellowship, and just go there, and it's a, a white dove silhouette on a purple field. Uh, you can just go to our website, stfonline.org, and it's .org, not uh, .com, or to one of our main websites, truthortradition.com, and you look for the REV Bible, and by the way, that's trademarked. That is our translation of the Bible. We've been working on it now for 17 years, revised English version. And we have the Bible is linked to a commentary, and in the commentary there are appendices. And Appendix uh, 16 is titled Faith is Trust. It's a fairly long appendix. You've know, you got to be prepared to read about 20 pages, but it really covers the subject very well. Right, and, then, and that appendix, people can get those quotes that you mentioned here and also do f- further research because you have all the, the sources and footnotes in there. So that's definitely a resource for people to use. Any concluding thoughts on this subject before uh, we wrap it up? Just that I would in- encourage people to, to do their own research on this and be com- convinced of this in their own mind because once we understand that faith is trust and we understand how trust works, the first time the salesman comes to your door, you don't really trust him, but by the 10th, 12th time he's coming, you fully trust him, and if he's got a product, you, you really accept it. Well, the same thing works with God. When we move into a walk with God, there may be aspects of that where we don't really trust God, where we really are kind of taking a little bit of a a risk or just kind of accepting it because some of our Christian friends have told us about it. And then as we push ourselves into that relationship, all of a sudden we find our trust in God growing. And and, And that really is such a wonderful thing. You know, without trust, Hebrews tells us, without trust, it's impossible to please God. So we really want to work and build our trust in God. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today, John. Oh, you're sure welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me on your show. I hope you enjoyed that. I just want to let you know I have a couple of links in the show notes for this episode. First is the link to the full article that Shane Height wrote called Faith is Trust as well as a link to the ongoing Bible translation project, which also Dustin Smith and Jerry Weirwell are involved with, called the Revised English Version, and that's at revisedenglishversion.com. And let you know that I have links to several, I guess four of his websites on the show notes for today. So if you want to check those out and see what else Shane Hyde is up to. That would be great. Also, if you would like to listen to Shane Hyde speak live, he is going to be attending and speaking at our Kingdom Fest this year on September 8th to the 10th, which you can come to. If you go to lhim.org, you can get more information and sign up to come to that. Shane Hyde is going to be expositing John 1.1. Our theme this year is Yahweh, There Is No Other, and he is going to lead off Saturday morning by explaining what John 1 is all about. And he's well qualified to do so because he actually wrote a really fat book on this subject called One Lord and One God with a couple of other authors and has been working on the subject for really decades. So come to Kingdom Fest if you want to meet John Shanehite as well as Stan Chi from the Christian Disciples Church is coming and is going to share, as well as Seth Ross from the Church of God General Conference. So we have an exciting weekend planned. I hope to see you there, September 8th to the 10th. Get more information or register at lhim.org. I'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.